Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Samron Ray, principal at Comet Labs. The website is cometlabs.io. Samron, how are you today? Good, Richard. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Good. Doing, doing good. So tell me about uh, Comet Labs. What do you guys do? Yeah, so Comet Labs is a venture capital fund that's been investing in early stage AI and robotics companies for a little bit over two years now. Uh, so we were one of the first VC funds focused on this area, and uh, we've been investing heavily in this space. How, are there, so you said there's, you're one of the first. Um, how come there's not more? Is it because the technology is too new or are VCs uh, nervous about this area? Do they see it as risky? No, so there are now uh, many more funds, um, but just even a little bit over two years ago, there, there really weren't. Um, so what we've seen is this new wave of AI investing. Um, so, of course, with greater amounts of data, compute power, um, and a lot of very, very uh, smart uh, research folks in, in AI and robotics, um, we're seeing many more startup opportunities. So uh, certainly getting uh, more and more exciting. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been doing a big series on AI. All of a sudden, it's gotten uh, hot again the past few years. Why do you think it was quiet for so long and now it's like there's a resurgence of AI? Yeah, like I said, I think um, a, a few enabling uh, advances where uh, we just have much greater compute power, uh, large amounts of data available in various interesting verticals, um, and a lot much more research attention being paid and, and really interesting new advances like you know generative adversarial networks, for example. And so um, the combination of these three, um, as well as more attention, of course, uh, through the media, has really supercharged the landscape. Um, and I think more and more what's really interesting is applications of AI and robotics to traditional industries. So thinking about um, industries that have lagged behind a little bit in tech adoption, but that could really benefit from AI. Uh, for example, you know, we invest in traditional industries across agriculture, transportation, insurance, and others. Yeah, I was going to ask you, AI could be applied everywhere, which is great. So yeah, what, what are industries you focus on and maybe some examples of companies that uh, you chose to invest in and why, what you like about them? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, today we've invested in over 35 companies in, the, in these verticals. Um, so agriculture, as I mentioned, is one um, where we really see labor shortage trends intersecting with advances in robotics uh, presenting really interesting opportunities. So uh, one company we invested in uh, on the seed round is called Abundant Robotics. Uh, and they've built an apple picking robot. Um, and one of the founders grew up on an apple orchard himself. Um, and since then, uh, Google Ventures GV has led their fall on round. Um, but that's one example, I think, of a, of a company that uh, we've been very excited about. Um, and then even recently, uh, uh, an investment for us um, that we've been excited about in, in the sales area is called Sales Hero. Um, and they're working on building next generation uh, automation of sales tools to really make uh, the sales process much more streamlined through AI. And one of their founders, is a co-founder of Datamir, um, also one of the leading lights of Hadoop, um, and really understands the whole enterprise sales process. So we've been very excited to back that team as well. How would you do sales uh, using AI? It seems like uh, 
it requires people to talk and build relationships. Yeah, at this point, it's really augmenting the workflow of the salesperson, right? So if you think about Salesforce um, and all the data that's entered on Salesforce, um, it still is not uh, seeing its full potential through automation of reaching out, of finding the highest quality target contact, um, of seeing you know customer behavior. And so um, what this company is able to do um, is really provide much more insight onto that process and really speed up the workflow of a salesperson, um, even though, of course, you know, those critical conversations are personal and one-on-one. Oh, it, it makes sense. So organizations have tons of data sitting in Salesforce, and even though they can score their opportunities, for instance, uh, an AI could automatically harvest, let's say, the juiciest ones and send out a prepared email to them or you know, remind sales reps, I guess, to contact them, that kind of stuff? Yeah. And, um, you know, I there's also beyond that, there's, um, I would say, second order things that, um, you know, they're working on. I, I can't discuss right now, but that are very, very exciting in terms of um, going even beyond just those insights um, and totally mm. reformulating the way in which we think about uh, sales agents. Um, and that's, you know, one area that we're really interested in generally in terms of our investment thesis is not just what can be streamlined today or what can be automated today, but what does AI enable uh, industries to to transform within? So are there any business models that change because of what AI um, allows to happen? And so I think thinking about what are new um, workflows and new streams that are enabled, not just automated, is, is a question that we think about a lot. Well, what's the, uh, you know, what, what investment? What's your investment thesis? Is what I should have asked. You know, like yes, you're focusing on AI-based companies and you know infrastructure, agriculture. But what? Why do you invest? And what's your overall goal with uh, your investing? Yeah, absolutely. So investment thesis for us. Um, so there's, I would say, two aspects to it. So the first aspect is vertical by vertical. We have a thesis. Um, so for example, I look a lot at. Um, what is traditionally known as fintech and insurtech um, and enterprise software generally. And so for insurance, um, we look at different parts of the value chain that we think are most interesting for AI to address. So one example uh, is uh, you know, using computer vision for claims processing. Um, that's an area that we've been doing a lot of research around. Um, and after we get that vertical thesis, then we think about things a little more qualitatively. So we look at the background of the team. We try to see okay, um, do they not only have strong technologists, but do they also have a deep understanding of the industry and what it takes to really sell into that industry? Do they understand the incentives of all the stakeholders? Um, Not just the end user, but uh, also the buyer, the person whose decision and signature is really required. Um, And then we look at, you know, the market size. Um, You know, if this gets big, how big can it get? Um, Is this a venture scale company, right? So is this something that's extremely valuable 10x or more improvement. Um, And then, you know, of course, in terms of the product, we look for um, any kind of data moat or proprietary data advantage. Um, So, you know, there are companies out there um, that at very early stage, uh, very strategically acquire data um, and have the exclusive rights on that data and negotiate things very, very smartly. Um, So we look for those types of uh, efforts as well. When, um, you mentioned uh, labor shortage when you're talking about agriculture. You know, I thought that um, everyone was afraid that AI would take up all the jobs and people would have nothing to do. Is that what you see AI doing, or do you see AI having the opposite effect, or 
having no net negative effect on jobs? Like, what's your outlook? Yeah, it's certainly the the, the billion dollar question that's on everyone's minds. And I think um, thinking about it holistically, certainly it's very concerning in terms of the the labor displacement that's going to occur um, in various industries. Um, but it's a little bit harder to think about and hasn't been covered as much in the media, I would say, about the new jobs that will be created. Um, so who are the people that are going to be training and maintaining robots, for example, um, who are going to be the, the people that work creatively one-on-one um, to think about new services um, and, and new opportunities? Um, so on an industry-by-industry basis, I think it's important for people to start thinking about you know, what are the new types of jobs that are going to be created and, and retraining those people. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a, a very important thing that needs to be thought through properly before it becomes a big problem. And I, I hope that um, you know technologists and, and VCs in this space can work together with um, people who uh, have you know political power to, to think about a solution here. Um, but you know that's uh, a whole nother ballgame. What about per industry? Do you see that in some industries? You think AI definitely is going to uh, impact jobs negatively and some not, or it's just too early to tell and the whole thing is nebulous right now? Yeah, I think there's certain, I mean, I think one problem um, right now in the media is the Terminator representation of what AI is, you know, the humanized, uh, humanoid version. Um, so people are envisioning that human looking robots are going to take jobs. Um, you know, basically that's very misleading, right? So a lot of AI powered software. Um, does not necessarily take a human robot shape or form. Um, so first, I think the conversation needs to be sort of reshaped around the realities of what's happening. And second to that, um, yes, it's industry by industry. Um, and I think that um, it's really premature to to predict what exactly is going to happen. Um, and it really depends, of course, on the economics of each industry and, and what's happening um, generally macroeconomically. Um, so I, I hesitate to sort of issue strong predictions about uh, that. Uh, I just, you know, my personal belief is that um, societies and economies are stronger when social safety nets are, are strong. Um, so <clears throat> my hope is that, you know, these things can be discussed in tandem. Okay, very good. What about uh, the companies themselves? Do you see that, um, are they any less or better prepared than other companies that, that you'd invest in is that, you know, the AI company is a different breed of company or are they just like any other startup? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think they are um, just like any other startup in the sense of they need a core business. However, they're not just like any startup in terms of the development cycle and in terms of their needs. Um, so one of the core issues with AI startups is uh, we find is productizing. Uh, so how do you really, you know, the sort of lean startup methodology that um, software startups have relied upon for, for years now doesn't necessarily fit the needs of AI startups because um, you need to secure a lot of data early on. There's a cold start problem of where do you really find that data to begin with? Um, and then how do you start spinning what we call the data flywheel where you're solving enough of a customer's problem um, to get the initial data you need um, and then using that to start solving bigger and more valuable problems. So uh, in terms of productizing, I think, that's the key challenge, uh, and that development cycle is, is uh, somewhat different from traditional software startups. Okay. And that's another thing I've heard is, you know, you need a lot of data, a lot of data, but any sense of how much is enough in order for AI to work 
any examples of different systems, you know, just to, so people can go, jeez, I didn't realize you need that much data. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly depends, right? So I think um, for the type of data that you need, a lot of companies start out with publicly accessible data. Um, so whatever that they can find images online or, for example, training on legal contracts online. Um, I think that uh, what really matters for us is not necessarily just the amount of data, but what is the core proprietary nature. Um, so we think about defensibility a lot, right? So what what makes a startup defensible compared to another? And that will really involve uh, basically, uh, in one sense, the data mode that they have. So how hard it is to get that data, what makes it unique, what makes it valuable, what makes it hard to access for other competitors and entrants. Um, so sometimes, um, you know, for example, they might engage in unique licensing agreements with companies, larger companies that hold this data, and maybe they get an exclusive license to it. And more other times, they just go out there um, and uh, basically train their models on whatever data they can find very quickly uh, and, and negotiate the rights to it. So it, it, it's really a matter, I think, more about proprietary versus the amount in terms of what we're interested in. Are there, are there particular areas where it's going to be, um, I mean, almost impossible to get the data we need, or is it, are things becoming interconnected enough where we're okay? I mean, do we need to wait on, let's say, IoT devices, Internet of Things, in order to be able to get the data we want for certain industries? Yeah, so I think um, certainly, of course, in highly regulated industries uh, where there are privacy concerns, um, that's a big issue facing startups. And so at that level, they need to start partnering with incumbents. Um, and it's a tricky line to walk where, um, you know, they're working with incumbents, but then potentially disrupting them as well over the long term. Um, so that's something, you know, that is certainly a challenge. Um, in terms of the the data angle for where uh, startups are able to access it, um, I think a lot of it really does come down to um, some of this negotiation uh, that I mentioned um, and really working smartly with um, <clears throat> interested providers. Okay. And I guess as we get more data, it'll open up industries that right now are closed because, again, not enough data, or ones we may, maybe we haven't even thought of. Oh, I didn't know we can get this data, and now we can use AI to analyze it and make you know predictions. Right, yeah, and I think that's something that's really exciting um, about new sources, novel sources of data that can enable uh, new workflows, right? So, for example, in insurance, um, like you mentioned in IoT, um, is there further granularity on risk profiles or people's habits that can be utilized to generate new types of insurance products? Let's say micro insurance for, um, let's say you're borrowing a friend's car for an hour, or let's say um, you want uh, a new type of product insured. Um, I think getting that sort of granularity on behavior allows those types of products to, to be generated. And what, what do you feel like you see? Because, you know, you have, I'm sure you get pitched tons of times. So you would, I guess, have a, a very good lay of the land. You see the, you know, 30,000 foot view of the AI world and where everyone's moving and grooving. So what, what kind of insights do you have you think that other people don't have that are, you know, just like the common public? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the really exciting, interesting things for me is seeing how, uh, as I said, AI companies aren't just automating and streamlining current workflows. They're really reinventing uh, the core economics of, of many industries. And I think we're just starting to see that. Um, and startups that are um, taking a very vertical focus um, are ones that are, are most exciting to us. And so I think um, in terms of 
what we are looking for. That's something that doesn't come out as much, um, perhaps, in, in how AI is covered. But really, from end-to-end understanding how an industry works and how, you know, from data ingestion to output of an insight, um, AI can change a business is something that's really interesting to us. So, um, you know, there are companies out there that take something that's really seems like a narrow kind of unsexy problem in an obscure industry, um, but that are, you know, reinventing it, like I said, in insurance and in agriculture, transportation. Okay. Um, this is, I mean, I'm sure there's common advice to any, you know, from any VC, but, you know, what do you look for in successful uh, applicants? that are looking for funding, you know, what are the key elements that they should have? Yeah, absolutely. So um, to think about it uh, broadly in different buckets, right? So team, uh, why, are, why are you the best team to work on this problem? Um, and so uh, often that takes personal passion and a personal story around a problem that they're solving um, and a combination of AI talent and, and industry expertise. Um, you know, often uh, young founders may not have worked in industry for for decades, of course, and that's totally fine. But as long as they've developed unique insights on the industry by talking to their customers, um, then that gets really interesting. And I think talking to your potential customers is something that's not not really done enough um, at the seed stage. And so uh, we love to see a lot of extensive research on that. Um, then when you get to the market size, you know, again, what is what is the unique um, insight that you have on this market that others have not been able to see? Um, and what really allows you to successfully sell your AI solution in a market that may not be as interested or may have a, a difficult risk-benefit profile. Um, so we love to see a lot of thinking about um, customer psychology. Interesting. Um, what the, out of the companies you invest in, like you said, you talked about psychology, are people's reactions to AI what the companies thought it would be? Do they... Do they even know they're engaging with AI sometimes, um, or is it is the best way to use AI is to make it invisible to the customer? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, ideally it it is invisible to the customer, right? So, um, in the sense of not not being an AI first product, um, AI is an incredible technology that uh, enables a lot of amazing business opportunities, but um, it it's really should not be used as a crutch. Uh, to mask um, the fact that uh, it's not a, you know, that the fact that it's ultimately a business proposition, right? Um, so showing clear ROI and payback periods um, from the point of view of the customer is extremely important. Um, so uh, the other side of it, though, is that, you know, of course, with um, deep learning, there's the black black box explainability problem. Um, so if you get certain, especially in sensitive realms like in, in medicine, um, and industries with a lot of privacy, um, you need to be able to show how you arrive to a certain insider solution. Um, so that's a current challenge right now with you know, certain deep learning solutions. Hmm. So, yeah, you're right. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if you're able to speak to this, but what makes deep learning, for instance, a black box? Do, do uh, data scientists not even know how the, uh, the computer is, is figuring out you know, how important each factor is or what, what makes it a black box? Yeah, so in the sense of um, not necessarily understanding the the various, um, met, you know, it's it's a bit tough to explain, but um, receiving an output from a system that is able to learn by itself over time um, and what's sort of happening in that box to get to that 
um, is not necessarily something, of course, that, that humans have provided. So seeing patterns in data that humans can't provide, uh, that humans have not been able to see, um, it gets you to certain outputs, but then explaining those patterns is a challenge. Um, and so that's really, um, that's really what's more obscured. Gotcha. And I guess in certain fields, like you said, you need to show why something works. It's not good enough that, oh, it works and experimentally, you know, we've tested it and it works. Or, you know, are there any industries where you have to know why it works and you can't just say, hey, it works and we've done trials on it and the trials worked, so we're okay to do it. Yeah, certainly. I mean, as I said, in, in medicine, right, um, explainability is a big problem in terms of regulatory requirements. Um, and then as well as where any area where bias might come into play unintentionally, um, that's, you know, something that's really important to make sure it doesn't happen um, in algorithms that might lead to bias results when that was an intention. Um, so a lot of that, of course, depends on the quality of the training data itself as well. What would be a, a bias result? What, what do you mean? Yeah, so, um, you know, a result of uh, basically, you know, the training data itself um, is biased where there's only a certain um, type of person, whether on their race or gender, that's represented in certain different buckets. Um, and, you know, if that data is not um, examined in a way that um, is doesn't lead to that bias, it can lead to garbage in, garbage out, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. What about if you have a uh, a learning model that does take into account certain factors that, you know, for some reason there's laws against taking them into account, like race or gender, and the algorithm produces a result that would, you know, I, I don't know, get a certain, you know, it would produce a desired result, but it uses data that maybe is not supposed to be used. Yeah, I think that gets really into and difficult and tricky questions. Um, and I think, <clears throat> you know, we need a, an inclusive process. Um, to determine that, you know, who gets to decide these questions. Uh, I don't know yet. There are a lot of smart ethicists working on this that I think um, are, are, are doing some work on this. I guess it's just something that everyone has to watch out for and be aware of, right? Yeah, totally. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so any other uh, basic factors on what your firm looks for in particular when it evaluates the company? Are there, you know, like how early stage do you go? Are there certain fields that you don't want to look at that you are interested in, but you're not? You know, any, um, you know, a brief sketch of what you're looking for? Yeah, totally. So um, in terms of uh, stage, we look mostly at early stage. So seed in series A um, is where we play. And the reason being, you know, that's really exciting for us in terms of sometimes being the first money in uh, on companies that are getting off the ground, um, as well as, you know, the economics are, are really interesting. Um, in terms of the other aspects, you know, um, we're, we also try and keep our minds open, you know, because there are a lot of unknown unknowns and innovation comes out of left field often. And so I think it's important for us to um, balance our thesis-based approach also with um, the willingness to, to be surprised. Um, so uh, that's an area that, you know, we try to keep an open mind. Okay, very good. And what's the best way for um, interested founders to uh, to contact you and to, you know, maybe... I don't know if you need a call for pitches. I'm sure you have enough, but, uh, you know, how do they evaluate whether they'd be even a fit to talk to you? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're always open to talking to any founders in this area. You know, it's, these conversations are, are always a lot of fun for us. So um, our website is cometlabs.io. Um, we have a, a submission form there. Um, I can also be reached in my email. It's samiron, S-A-M-I-R-O-N, at cometlabs.io. Um, I also on LinkedIn. So 
um, yeah, I'm, I'm all ears always and uh, really love these conversations. That's great. Hey, Samron, thanks for coming. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Yeah, thank you, Richard, for having me. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.